when you get in the car with your Uber driver, you don't see the other side of their life, right? Um, yeah. You don't see that they slept yeah. in that car. You don't see that they're that they don't have health insurance. You don't see that they're like they have a chronic health condition that they are not able to afford. But you see the specifically constructed experience that is for you, which is nice ride, some conversation. You get out, you rate them, you tip them, and you know you go your separate way. And so commentary should be trying to help people to expand their awareness of things beyond like the nice cozy narratives that are constructed for them to experience and digest, right? Hello humans, welcome back to Power Report. It's your host Dan from the internet and I began this show almost a year ago in order to break past the barriers of existing political conversation. And I'm happy to say that today's episode definitely fits that bill. One of my top frustrations with news is how unflinchingly bad our media is at covering our global economy's largest and most consequential sector. Of course, I'm talking about the tech sector. The simplicity and necessity that technology has brought our modern lifestyles comes at a high cost. And that cost is a bunch of political, social, and economic problems that neither our media representatives or our elective representatives want to talk about in good faith. And of course, they don't want to even solve the problem either. So that's something that we have to deal with. But again, this is Power Report, so we're going to do things differently than everybody else. We're going to have an in-depth but approachable conversation about the role of technology in our lives and what we should probably do about it. And so I'm joined in this conversation by Edward Anguesso Jr. I'm a tech and labor reporter at Motherboard and a co-host of This Machine Kills, a podcast about tech and the political economy of it. And as I think you'll see in the interview, I couldn't be more fortunate to be joined by someone as knowledgeable as Edward. In this podcast, we're about to disrupt your relationship to technology. But before we kick off, don't forget that my new Twitch show, Thank Dan It's Friday, is on every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash sourcestream. That's twitch.tv slash sourcestream. It's my weekly recap show of news and politics, and it helps me kind of kick things off into the weekend uh, with my other shows, such as Power Report, like you're listening to right now, and Audio Face, of course, which you can check out at audioface.show, where me and my friend Sean review new music every single week to let you know what's the cool stuff to listen to. Again, it's a little bit of a break from politics, or is it? But you can check it out at audioface.show, so you can subscribe to it in your preferred uh, platform, whether that's podcasts or YouTube. And all of the links I mentioned above, including the links to find more of Edward's stuff, will be found in the podcast description or video description. So without further interruptions and introductions and those kind of things, let's get into it. Edward, thank you very much for joining me on Power Report. I'm excited to have you on, um, least of which because there aren't many times I get to talk to fellow black nerds. So like, this will be an excellent opportunity to kind of get that going. But um, we'll get to talking about that kind of stuff maybe a little bit later. I kind of want to get into the fact that you are constantly covering these stories about the influence of big tech and all of the ways its tendrils kind of get its way into politics. And I kind of want to express, or like kind of want to explore a number of those different avenues because 
you know, the news cycle, sometimes tech stories make it in the news cycle. Sometimes you get Anderson Cooper trying to make sense of Section 230 or something. But these moments are always very fleeting. They don't actually stay or last very long in the news cycle. And so you miss a lot of really big gems about technology and the way it's influencing all of our lives and politics and the way it has no way of handling um, the influence of technology in big tech companies. So that's kind of what this interview will be about. And this podcast episode will be about more broadly is to help dig deeper into some of these topics that have been happening. And one thing I know what was really fascinating for me, especially as COVID-19 was starting, was that it looked like it was going to be this really amazing moment for labor, actually, in the United States. Because here you have these really big tech companies. Uh, one, the one that comes to mind is Amazon, who has this huge delivery service monopoly in addition to operating grocery stores like 365 and Whole Foods, now Amazon Fresh. And they're positioned really well to do really well in the COVID economy. But even though they're making record profits, they're being harsher than ever to some of their workers. There was the story of um, Gerald Bryson, who was fired um, for speaking out about the working conditions at Amazon during COVID-19, how there weren't ample uh, measures taken to clean uh, for the workers, measures to make sure that they were socially distanced properly. And for speaking out, Amazon laid down the hammer and almost openly bragged about it. So I guess good to kind of start. Do you think that what kind of happened there or with Amazon and I kind of know the answer, but this will help like start the picture. Like, but is that indicative of just Amazon in particular, or is that something that was more widespread in tech or the way that tech was handling COVID-19? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great question. Amazon is really, in some ways it is unique in that it is able to get away with more. Um, you know, it can openly fire, for example, Chris Smalls um, as retaliation for speaking up against COVID. Um, it's also structured in a way where, you know, for example, delivery drivers um, are contracted through third party vendors. And so Amazon has been able to neglect um, working conditions, COVID-19 guidelines, um, providing sanitization materials, really anything, um, gloves, masks to these sort of workers because it's the responsibility of the vendor and can lash out against those who speak up. Um, you know, Amazon at the same time is, I think right in line with a lot of the tech companies in that because of the stratified workforce, it's primarily focused on retaining and preserving perks and benefits and the happiness of that core employee workforce. But is more than willing and able and eager to often we'll see like Facebook and Google and all these other companies to throw contractors under the bus. I mean, they, we already have a labor system before COVID where at tech companies, contractors were given some of the worst jobs, you know, whether it's Google with the TVCs, you know, temps vendors and contractors uh, who are for, who, you know, and many times, or many of them might have the same job and are, you know, given a carrot that they'll be able to transition to a full-time employee, but that's not, not necessarily the case, even though they outnumber full-time employees, Facebook, where they do content moderation um, and are stacked in, you know, uh, conditions that are deplorable, you know, that haven't improved much. Um, you know, contractors are doing a lot of the invisible labor and are treated, you know, worse for it. 
Um, and COVID, I think, highlighted those those problems, but also made it more urgent for these companies to prevent that from becoming a, a point of organizing. You saw a lot of energy spent on surveilling workers, on crushing labor actions, on preventing you know, union elections, as is the case with Amazon, uh, in trying to dismiss unionizing, uh, unionizing efforts, like with the Alphabet Workers Union, in trying to quickly head off workers' revolts, like when they deplatformed Donald Trump or when they uh, deplatformed uh, you know, parlor. Um, there's a lot of attempts to, I think, be a little bit more brutal because COVID-19, as you did say, had a huge potential, you know, to have worker revolts and strikes or st work stoppages because of how bad conditions were at various points. Yeah, it was really shocking to me that that effort didn't materialize. But I think part of the reason that effort didn't materialize is that right underneath our shoulders or like right underneath our noses is this movement by big tech to do some of like the harshest anti-labor movements we've really seen since like the robber baron era during like the turn of the 20th century. Um, and a lot of this isn't taught a lot in history, but we had this whole issue where you had the titans of new industry like Carnegie and Rockefeller, etc., who were steel magnates and oil magnates and control vertically integrated all levels of their company so that they were effective monopolies in their realms. And ultimately you had presidents come in and at differing levels either cater to these interests or decide to act in a populist way and try to destroy them. But overall you had um, trust laws and union laws that were kind of built from that and that in a very going over broad history strokes kind of way helped to spur a lot of union organizing throughout at least the first half of the 20th century and a little bit of the second half before kind of neoliberalism really started kicking in. But it, it's also very important to highlight all that stuff about the previous era because I see a direct relationship between the potential that there could have been to mobilize people during COVID-19 around workers' issues as they relate to tech companies and the direct efforts those tech companies were taking to stifle any sort of uh, dissent either among their workers or among the users of their software. I think uh, I'm out in California, and so Proposition 22 is a textbook example of this case. Uh, but I think, would you like to kind of go into that and kind of detail that connection as well? Yeah, you know, I think it is correct. You know, it's really good to both lay out the trust and labor issues because antitrust and, you know, labor or labor and employment laws are going to have to be thought of uh, or more tightly in organized as strategies, you know, working with one another if we're going to seriously check the power of these platforms or big tech companies or companies masquerading as technology firms. Um, you know, during the COVID, uh, the first year of the COVID pandemic, you're right, there was not as much labor organizing among big tech companies. But I think in the rest of society, I think it is also worth pointing out that there were a large amount of strikes and a large amount of like work stoppages or a large amount of direct actions larger than previous years. And it had been, a, in that sense, a good year for labor, even if they had not materialized a one-to-one -one victories. And that energy is carrying over where this year, you know, with the ascension, the Biden administration with the, uh, you know, 
we're waiting on what changes are going to happen, but you know, there's the NLRB, there's FTC, you know, there's antitrust division, you know, who staffs these positions is going to be in very good position, you know, position to uh, realign or um, the balance of power here and to do historic, large uh, sweeping changes. Proposition 22 is a really good example because it, represents a, a historic transgression by, you know, a group of companies who, you know, the important thing to remember about the gig economy, you know, Prop 22 is an attempt by uh, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, and Instacart to carve out an exemption to the California AB5 law that would have reclassified workers as employees if they were actually being misclassified by the company and failed an ABC test, which would determine, okay, do you independently control your work? Can you control the hours? Are you necessary for the company? Because if so, uh, if, you know, if you fail any of these planks of that test, then you are an employee and they're just exploiting you. Um, and these companies were able to carve out an exemption for their work. But the misclassification is also part of a larger attempt by companies, specifically tech companies, to reintroduce piecework, right? To reintroduce fixed pay for fixed production, um, which was, you know, not outright banned, but was crushed before um, the ascension of the New Deal legislation, right? When minimum wage was instituted and where we had a huge normalization of standards for what people would be paid um, inside of the economy for their work, for their labor. So this attempt to get back to piecework is a huge assault on the past, you know, almost century of labor law. and also an attempt for these companies to realize profitability that would otherwise be illegal. You know, um, if, you, if your company, as these companies do, have to change the laws radically to become profitable, that's the business model. And they're best understood as the tip of the spear, where if they do it there, they'll be able to do it in um, New York and in Illinois as they're trying to, uh, because California, you know, is thought of as the bastion, right, of the Democratic Party, or at least like one of its beating hearts of liberalism, I think, in the public imagination. You know, you have the Speaker of the uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi's from there. You have the Governor of Newsom's one of the you know more powerful governors in the country, more prominent ones. You have has political um, aspirations for the presidency as well that California yes. have been able to telegraph since literally 2014. Right. And it's also part of like a really long standing political dynasty, a trio of political families that have like, you know, traded seats for the governorship with each other and in key positions in San Francisco and the Bay Area for you know almost 100 years as well. Which makes it super convenient that big tech is also located right around there. So it just like makes these transactions simple. Like uh, with uh, Newsom, you know, Newsom and Pelosi are related by marriage um, and you know, Newsom and Pelosi both have very deep ties to Silicon Valley donors and patrons at the same time also with labor. And there's been a balancing act and uh, an attempt to do it. I think like the San Francisco section of the political party, of the Democratic Party, you know, especially with uh, Kamala Harris also comes from this sort of political machine. Um, you know, that political party is concerned, or that section of the political party, that wing of the political party is concerned with balancing its relationship with big tech and with labor. Um, But these compromises are going to undermine the labor regime and also the antitrust regime, right, which was already compromised since the, you know, the mid uh, 20th century by this 
uh, belief that instead of focusing on the actual outcomes um, and, the con and the concentration of market power from these companies, you should look at prices and that the prices should be the, or the consumer welfare standard should be the sole metric by which you judge whether a company has too much power. You know, these, all these shifts are coming to home, you know, uh, these chickens are coming home to roost. And it is concerning that so many of the moderate San Francisco, um, California Dems are in positions of power in the, in the party, but at the same time, you know, with uh, a labor movement that at least is on the move and with the resurgence of this, you know, Brandeisian antitrust movement, there's hope that they can apply pressure to Biden and his administration to get them to, you know, be better than Obama would have been on this issue um, and try to aspire to have the courage of the moment and crush uh, these huge transgressions by these companies. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't even know about the relationship between Gavin Newsom and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, to me, that is uh, saddening, but not surprising. And it's not saddening just because like of the relationship itself, but it's indicative of how politics is sold in the United States as something that is democratic and anyone could, you know, just happen to be a working class kid somewhere and one day make it into government. But you realize none of these kids are really working class or many of them aren't or the ones who at least started working class definitely get into the Congress and the halls of Senate and that changes them. But I think that almost segues into another thing that you were talking about that was really interesting was that California is seen as one of the bastions of liberalism. And because of that, the tech world is also seen as uh, reflective of that liberalism. And of course, to some extent, there is. I've lived in San Francisco. I've definitely experienced that, that they're hand in hand. And I'm sure that also doesn't matter that um, another aspect of that is Oakland, uh, just across the bay, and the radical history that exists there definitely aligns with Silicon Valley. It, 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 there's a lot of stuff to be said there. But I often think that tying big tech to liberals or the left is often used as a lazy rhetorical strategy, often by folks like Tucker Carlson and conservatives who are trying to say, um, trying to make a censorship point or trying to make some other kind of argument when the nuances of the relationship between uh, big tech and the broader left of center wing of this country uh, those differences couldn't be more stark, especially when it comes to tech and labor. Uh, Prop 22 won in a state where Democrats won overwhelmingly, in an election where Democrats won overwhelmingly um, just this past November, I believe like 54, 56% of the vote. And part of that was because these same tech companies who have been bombarding Californians with advertisements for their products made advertisements in those exact same styles, but about trying to convince you that, oh, this deal that's obviously very helpful for workers is actually bad for them and restricts their freedom and their ability to do things. And it's going to raise prices. And it went all the way from just rhetoric and advertisements to if you opened Uber or Lyft around election time, you as a driver or a user had to swipe a little notification basically saying that, yes, you'll vote uh, the right way that Uber and Lyft and all the tech companies want you to on Prop 22. And it was amazingly effective marketing using the same types of, uh, I guess, like psychology that they use to develop their apps. And to me, that was one of the scariest things was how quickly that uh, the so-called left state could be blinded into just straight liberalism through the same sort of colorful, poppy advertisements that have been working on them to sell them tech products. And um, I, of course, like, 
I'm not surprised, but it was definitely a scary moment, at least for me, when I'm thinking about um, left organizing in the future. Yeah, you know, I think one of the more salient moments was when the head of the California NAACP uh, was revealed to have been taking payments directly from um, the Yes on Prop 22 committee, which was formed by Uber, Lyft, and these other companies, uh, to basically endorse it and um, campaign in support of it and say that, yes, this would help, you know, black workers, this would be a, a great thing for them to have this um, guarantee that exempts the companies from Prop 22. Um, and, you know, she, it was also found that she was doing this for a host of other propositions. Um, I think that it is important to think about why it is that, you know, on so many fronts with Prop 22, these companies were able to seduce uh, actors that should have been against them to either be quiet or to be interested in a compromise or to support it. Um, they had tried to do back room, backdoor negotiations with, uh, you know, unions, with um, the SEIU, uh, with the Teamsters um, to try and push onto them the idea of a third category where you would not be quite an employee, you would not get quite uh, an independent contractor classification, um, but it would save Uber, Lyft and all of them on the long run uh, labor costs because, you know, maybe they don't get a minimum wage, but they get the right to collectively bargain. Uh, maybe they don't get health care benefits, but they get workers comp. Maybe they don't get um, unemployment insurance, but they get sick pay leave or contribution to uh, health care. Um, you know, these are all hugely concerning things because, you know, as you said, you know, California is thought of this uh, as this bastion. And as I was saying, as a bastion of liberalism. But with San Fran I think San Francisco is a really good example because when you, you know, you, you look at the history of San Francisco, a city which, you know, really birthed out of, of the money that flowed um, as a result of mining and the gold rush and how you can see parallels between uh, the concentration of wealth, the development of technology for private profiteering, and then ancillarily to build up, um, you know, outlets for that wealth, you know, outlets for residential housing or for a speculative property so that the assets could grow and they could get a return on it. Similar to, I guess, the way that money would be parked by VCs or by tech, uh, by wealthy tech workers or executives um, in startups and other enterprises that are ultimately speculative, but are supposed to realize some outsized return. Um, to the grand artifice of, you know, this enterprise destroying the ecology, right? Destroying the ecology of California and having it and, re and requiring it eventually to just be maintained artificially, either through destroying um, waterways, by destroying, you know, farmlands, by destroying, you know, natural features that got in the way of uh, mining loads. And I think similarly, the way that the tech industry has, you know, destroyed, um, you know, so much are, are poisoned and, and made toxic so much of like our general communities and discourse and, and social realities with one another, but also the political system and the economic system, right? We have an economy that is largely dependent on the growth of the tech sector, even though a large chunk of the tech sector is unprofitable and has no way to ever be profitable because it just it exists as a vehicle for capital to get sunk into and then pulled out with at a higher return, right? Then parking your money in treasury bonds, for example, or parking your money in right. you know some other traditional investment vehicle. Uh, this is a very, very dangerous um, situation. 
Uh, I think similarly to how it was when mining was the main driver of growth in San Francisco, right? Where the way that most of the resources were extracted, mines are horrible, hellish landscapes that evoke the imagery of like Tartarus. Expensive. Mm -hmm. Expensive. They were usually, you know, in historically, they were where you would send people who were prisoners of war or, you know, for huge crimes or uh, serious crimes against in, in a country or some city. And they ended up, resulting in stupendous wealth and were lifelines for these, uh, you know, lifelines for the enterprise as it was growing. And I think similarly, you know, the, the basis of the, the tech economy now, uh, Silicon Valley's tech economy has been, at one point, it was literally poisoning people, you know, in East Palo Alto, when they had that industrial plant there, and they were making semiconductors, and they were making technical uh, implements there. Um, and it became eventually a super fun uh, site. But they're also just literally harvesting the people who are contractors. They're harvesting the residents as they gentrify and push them out of their own uh, lo locales. Like they're, they're harvesting individuals in one way or another. I mean, not to use the sort of, uh, I guess, surveillance capitalist lo logic or language of like, you know, they're harvesting us for information, but they are using people in a way to build enough information to develop these ad tech products so that they can reap billions in, in revenue. And also so they can develop products to hand over or sell to other businesses or government contracts uh, or to, you know, illicit government contracts with the defense department, with the GSA um, to, to zoom out and to look at the big, uh, big tech and the way that it's, uh, it's risen is to see that it is waging a war on labor so that it can, you know, extract more profits for those that are unprofitable, that it is waging a war on, I think, the general public in general, so that it would be able to get enough funds and information to make more profitable goods for governments and other businesses, and also waging a war on the society in the political system and trying to ensure laws that protect it from ever being challenged by labor, by regulators, by other businesses. Um, I think these are just like out of control forces. Um, Prop 22 being a small, a very important example that will go nationwide, but also this is what they're doing all across the country in any industry that they can possibly do so. I, yeah, it's, there's so many historical parallels and those historical parallels are literally in the same areas of land in which um, these conversations are currently being had right now. And so I think it's just really amazing. I love the kind of contextualization I want to, break that down for the audience of tech companies as financial instruments or financial vehicles because i mean like not to totally lose our audience but like the uh the financial sector a lot of people also notice that the stocks market other than that initial crash uh during the start of the lockdowns just continued to go up and up and up and up over the past um year or so almost since these lockdowns started and so it's very clear that the stock market and the financial markets are out of tune with uh, the record numbers of job losses and foreclosures and all of those business shutterings, all those different things happening. But it's happening because money isn't going into those kinds of quote unquote investments into people's lives so they can continue contributing to the economy. Money's going towards these derivatives, these stocks, these bonds, these ETFs, these other uh, tools that just kind of sit there in computer space, m adding value because of other like c calculations, essentially. It's not really like a material thing. And so 
when you contextualize a tech company as an asset, a lot of these tech companies are not profitable, um, but these tech companies are vehicles that investors can park their money in. Maybe they'll be worth more later as these workers are worked to build some sort of thing of value. So then that investor can sell that company of value to make more money and move on to the next thing and worry less about what that company is doing to society. Which I think brings us to like the next question to round things out here is that, do you get a feeling based on talking to people throughout tech um, on different levels in the sector that the people who are calling the shots, maybe the CEOs of these companies, the upper, upper management of these companies, do they really care about labor in the long term or are they taking almost this uh, Machiavellian sort of uh, almost Andrew Yang campaign idea that, look, we're going to automate the shit out of you anyways. Labor is going to be irrelevant in X number of years. So we just have to like hammer through this and try to not lose as much profit as we can until we don't need people to um, de at the check stands at our stores because the Amazon Fresh stores allow you to walk in, grab your items and go and you're already charged, eliminating the need for that extra job. So is, are they just buying time or do you feel like they actually care about this political pressure? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's always a interesting thing to consider with one company or another if they really believe the snake oil that they're selling. You know, do, did Uber believe for 10 years that next year it would make a um, you know, an automated car? Did it really believe that there would be robo-taxis and flying cars within two years, each year that it said it was two years away? Um, and similarly, do these firms believe that they're going to get rid of their workers? Do they believe that they're um, in war, at a war with, you know, labor? Or do they see it as just like a consequence of their larger vision? I think some executives definitely have a vision. They have like a vision of a political economy they want. They have a vision of the role that the law is supposed to play in regulations and the government and workers. Um, and they're trying to achieve it. You know, I think Peter Thiel would be a good example. Peter Thiel is, uh, you know, has ideas about what type of society and what type of businesses should thrive in that society that are, uh, why, you know, widely out of step. <laughs> anybody else uh this is a guy who's you know i think the most generous label would be a libertarian um <laughs> but he you know believes liberalism was a mistake um and not just like liberalism is in the democratic party i mean like you know he's skeptical of you know, liberal thoughts since the enlightenment you know isn't convinced that universal suffrage is a good idea um is someone who thinks that competition is anti-capitalist and that monopolies are good you know um the sort of visions that emerge out of that have very specific ideas about okay um if monopolies are good um and the government is in of itself a barrier um or should only is a barrier to ending competition or should only be used to end competition then you know maybe labor is also an impediment to um ending competition and also maybe labor is should be thought of as just like you know something that is a short-term implement and when it gets in the way you excise it and when it doesn't you use it um crush unions crush collective organizing crush any you know increase in the labor costs uh, but use the workers as an input for production largely and then there are others whose visions are, are less concerned maybe with it you know i think another example is like eric schmidt and his attempts to foster sort of like tech nationalist um, 
you know, society where uh, there's a close tie between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley. And, you know, one of the narratives ends up being like, we're doing it to fight against China or we're doing it to fight against Russia. We're using it to fight against our enemies and preserve our national security. Cause if we don't, they will. Um, but I think, you know, also on the other hand, there are people like, you know, Bezos and whoever he delegates responsibility for Amazon.com or, you know, the other, you know, projects or moonshot uh, projects that he has uh, to automate labor, that there is a real understanding that, you know, workers are necessary in the short term, uh, an impediment in the long term. And you have to figure out how to balance introducing technologies that surveil them more and may re they may resist with the need to drive down costs, even though they're already, you know, at bare bones uh, level, um, and also reduce the threat of worker revolts. Because I mean, the biggest threat to Amazon is still, at the end of the day, labor actions, right? That is why they hire the Pinkertons, you know, a detective agency is, uh, you know, basically a labor mercenary force that, you know, across this country's history is used to violently break up strikes and labor actions and killed laborers um, when they were striking. Um, and it's now really used by Amazon to surveil them, uh, to surveil workers in the United States, presumably. But, you know, as my colleague uh, Lauren Gurley did an investigative report on, they used them widely in Europe um, to prevent any group from connecting with the workers to organize them. I think, you know, in a company like Amazon, there's a real understanding, okay, we can put cameras everywhere. We can put devices on the workers that they have to check in on and watch them or track their movements. And that will help us discipline them into a more reliable input in production. But we also still need to develop technology to figure out how to remove the threat. Because I think at some level, workers are understood as a threat. Um, if they unionize, if they collectively bargain, if they stop the flow of production, uh, they are seen as a potential threat, you know, the threat of a good example being a union um, or a collective group that is able to increase wages as in, you know, a company owned by the world's richest man. Um, and I think also there are, you know, automation is probably, you know, there's a lot of automation threat or narratives or myths, right? There is an idea that automation will wipe out all of our, uh, all of our jobs. And I think, you know, the work by Aaron Benioff, uh, uh, is uh, really good in um, looking at automation as a consequence of larger economic forces or the, uh, the, uh, the automation discourse and saying that, you know, it's not so much that they are going to, uh, that these technologies are going to take away our jobs, but it's that the larger transformations in the economy make it so that there is quite literally not enough work for everybody or and that we should be trying to make sure that there is enough work for everybody or use technologies to say if there's not enough work for everybody, let's produce enough things for everybody. I kind of to touch on the point about how do you wrangle in these tech companies? That was a really interesting thing we just talked about. I kind of want to move into the idea of the fact that these tech companies do have an impact on their workers, but they're also running against 
the United States government, considering a lot of these tech companies are based in the United States. Um, and they're also running against governments across the world, from the European Union to governments all throughout um, Southeastern Asia, where a lot of products, namely from Facebook, um, all the way down the corporate structure to Instagram, to WhatsApp, to everything else, probably except Oculus at this point. Um, it's only a matter before the virtual reality headsets end up disrupting an election. But like, there have been these different avenues here where we're starting to see that it's no longer friendly MySpace Tom zone anymore. Like we're now seeing the CEOs of these social media companies and these tech companies more broadly, because now we'll include uh, Apple, Google, which wants to be a social media company, but never ever will be because they can't make a social media app and um, Twitter, etc. And they are now like doing the big boy thing. They're testifying in front of Congress right now and having to uh, make the case that these concerns that we're bringing up and others are bringing up are uh, you know, not to worry, and that we should just let the robber barons keep robber baroning. So a, a way we really saw this contextualize um, was over tech and censorship as the um, outgoing President Donald Trump was uh, taken off of Twitter, and that sent kind of a cascading effects down to where he was banned on other social media platforms in response to the fallout from the January 6th Capitol insurrection that he seemed to have been egging on I mean, arguably since he walked down the elevator, but at least since after the um, escalator, I mean, but at least since after the uh, 2020 election when it was clear that he wasn't going to win and he was trying to sow uh, disbelief in that idea, saying that the true patriots have to rise up and make sure that the true vote is cast. So, like, Twitter responded in that way by saying, look, we've... <laughs> We've worked around our own rules, we've created new rules, we've bent new rules for you, but now is the time, slash now is the PR-wise safest time to cut our hands loss of Donald Trump and censor him from the platform. And of course this sent the um, right-wing, I guess like cottage industry that cries censorship anytime someone claims to be shadow banned for not getting a lot of likes on their bullshit tweets. Um, that sort of apparatus began to spin up saying that this example of Donald Trump being banned from the Bird App website is an example of censorship from the tech companies. And so I guess to one part of that question, what would you say to that sort of surface level response that um, tech companies should or should not be allowed to censor people from their platform for certain behaviors? And then beyond that, like, where do you think the problems lie when the United States government especially tries to tackle this issue? Because I have some theories, but I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I think this was an interesting example because a lot of people, you know, it's like, oh, the world's the most powerful man, like he can't use a computer anymore. You know, like now he's just bricked out of everything. But also at the same time, like, this is a reality for a lot. This has been a reality for a lot of people. A lot of people get deplatformed. You know, uh, sex workers get deplatformed enthusiastically by the uh, mm -hmm. you got the behest of the right. Um, you know, black and brown voices, dissidents, activists, um, people who get brigaded by right wing hate moms get a deplatformed. Uh, people who cover these beats have to you know self censor because if they don't, they will get backlash that could get them deplatformed, but will almost certainly result in death threats. Um, but there's not that sort of concern at, uh, or there wasn't until it was like, you know, Donald Trump and, you know, they, with Donald Trump, it is, 
I think a complex moving issue because, you know, on the one hand, sure, you do not want tech companies to have the ability to um, unilaterally decide the terms in which you're allowed to use the platform or not because of how integral the platform becomes for certain avenues of life, for media, for politics, um, for communication, for people, you know, creating entertainment or creating, you know, information or generating cultural, you know, products. This is stuff that is, you know, a lot of people's, you know, bread um, and how they make their living. And at the same time, there has to be a question of like, what is allowed on the platform? How are we going to moderate it? And um, I think that there's been a lot of good work done by, you know, I think Becca Lewis is a really good, uh, you know, scholar researcher on, trying to deal with right-wing networks on these platforms and how much of it is the result of the platform and how much of it is just the fact of a right-wing network in our society. Um, and it is, it's complicated because a lot of the solutions or a lot of the things that are being proposed as solutions, we're not sure if it would work or would undermine the whole effort or the enterprise. And it's also the fact that we still have the inconsistent response, right? Where we still let these companies deplatform all types of people. Um, because these people don't have power or because these people are already marginalized in the larger discourse. Um, you know, generally, of course, against like censorship, but I do also think there's something to be said that the push by these companies was in the face of a threat of a workers revolt by the employees. You know, it was Twitter employees who said, you get rid of Donald Trump or, you know, we will fuck with your shit, <laughs> you know, withhold our labor. Yeah. Um, which is like the thing that Twitter needs to work every day, you know, um, same with Facebook, uh, same with AWS. Um, and that those, you know, these worker, these threats of a worker revolt were what led to the cascading effect. So I think in our discussions, you know, as people are continuing to think about this, it is important to think about how, the real action after four years came when the workers pushed it. So maybe we should look to that response as maybe the beginning of what we wanted to be for it. Maybe to hedge against companies having this unilateral power, we should democratize them more. And maybe that means the worker should control them, but the worker control does not immediately solve the question of content moderation or right-wing networks, you know, and so on and so forth. It's at the behest of the workers. Um, so maybe we then need to figure out new novel approaches to content moderation. Maybe we also need to address the fact that there is in this society because of how racist it is and how racist it's been for a long time, um, that there's no way to really root out this problem unless we're also figuring out how to root out, you know, the rot of white supremacy or of just the, the general deluge of racist nonsense that persists each, you know, everywhere or, you know, in large parts of the society. I mean, really fast, like, I just want to say, just on your point about content moderation, there it's in itself what you allow on your platforms is a lot of the basic structure of like everything. Because when we were talking earlier about tech and labor, a lot of the content moderators are contractors. So they're having to see like beheadings, uh, sexual abuse, like murders, just the worst shit. And they're not even really treated as full company employees, like Facebook or Google contracts with these outside companies there in um, sub suburbs in like Arizona and Florida. And these people are just coming there, no mental health services, and they're just getting screwed over. And even then, when things get to their desk, the things that are chosen by them to um, make decisions on are created by algorithms that themselves display algorithmic bias. 
um, from the people who created them, the same workers and laborers who are having to juggle with, um, am I okay with this like tech utopia that I've been sold that I'm currently building? Or do I want to revolt against this because I see that utopia is very clearly not a utopia? And do I want to risk my livelihood, my very comfortable livelihood in this current political economy um, to go against that when there may not be very many material upsides for me in the immediate future? That I, everything I think comes around that aspect of content moderation and what you do around that, that um, really kind of highlights your point that the workers are not the ultimate solution to that, um, but they are a big solution in pushing a lot of um, movement within these companies. Because these companies have already shown they're barely accountable to governments. Then the only way they may be accountable to um, anyone is by looking towards the people who literally keep the lights on, the servers running every single day, and seeing what happens. But that makes me want to get into something else I read about, which was the Google Union, which is a good example. Uh, there's some news that Google started, um, or like workers at Google started a union. Um, at least the last time I checked, there are almost a little under a thousand members who'd already signed up publicly for it. And it's a really big measure to see a union starting at um, definitely one of the biggest tech companies in the world. Uh, but another aspect of this that was reported in some articles and not others was that there have been attempts at a Google Union for years. And these have been in response to um, issues with Google and labor where their company mottos tend to go against their practices. There was that case um, with the um, Temnit Gebru, who was the black AI researcher who faced all that backlash for trying to point out issues within uh, Google's AI system and how it could be racially biased and was uh, reprimanded for that and ultimately like told to that she was being difficult and was let go of. So. I'm wondering almost, maybe this is the meta-politics of it, but these unions are not existing within a bubble. In fact, even there's like union pre-politics going beyond this. So in order to, if we've established that maybe one of our best and most effective quick measures against these tech companies is for the workers at these tech companies to awaken, well, let's look at what's happening with those workers. They might be confused in addition to the complications ethically that we talked about earlier. The fact that there have been these union attempts before, there have been these very obvious cases of people speaking out being reprimanded, and they're unfair, but how do you reconcile these things? And to kind of tie it all to this question, what do you think this union might learn from the previous union sort of experiences at Google, and then what can be applied to other tech companies? Yeah, you know, the work that these groups and their partners are doing is very important in that, you know, organizing and trying to radicalize or raise consciousness of workers so that they're more amicable to being militant and to head off these ethical dilemmas. But also there is, I think, a core problem in that, you know, uh, me personally, I'm not convinced that a company like Google or Alphabet should exist, definitely not in its gargantuan form today, but also not sure if it should exist as a private company. But I think most of the conversations, I mean, we can't, we can't realistically have that conversation that the company would never listen to it. The regulator, the regulatory apparatus is not, you know, there yet. Uh, most of the political uh, system and the general culture views these companies as necessary and integral. And it's just that they've like acted up a bit. Um, but uh, there is something to be said about, you know, how much can you, you know, ref, you know, reform like a broken system. I think uh, in the wake of Tim Newt's uh, firing, there was this really powerful essay I read um, 
and it was about the ethical failures of artificial intelligence, but also artificial intelligence researchers who are associated with Google. And it was talking about how, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the work comes down to making sure that like the phrenology is peer reviewed, you know, or was the metaphor that they used, like the idea that we have to, you know, make sure that unethical systems are put through ethical, you know, structures and systems of review. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, things like facial recognition should not exist. You know, things like surveillance should not exist. Uh, these large language models probably shouldn't exist, especially because they don't even help us really understand. They don't help create systems that understand language. They just create systems that mimic language, you know, is one of the critiques that Timnit had in her paper. There are a huge amount of questions that kind of get overlooked because of how and it makes sense how you know immediate and urgent the threat that these companies pose to everyday life is. But you know to reform them is not enough. You know I think there are historic examples that are interesting to think about and consider. You know attempts at cybernetics or the planning of you know technological systems to create like a harmonious production or company. You know the Lucas Plan, Project Cybersyn. These are examples where you could think of okay, let's say we do decide to have a Google or an Apple. Let's instead have it controlled, run by, and structured by the workers and their experiences and integrated into society in a way where it does production that's socially useful instead of let's help the government train drones so it stops killing uh, children at weddings. Let's help, you know, the government, uh, you know, figure out, you know, whether the conversation you just had was about, um, some national security breach, you know, let's figure out if you're, you're helping leaking information to the press. Um, you know, instead of doing projects like that, or, or potentially doing projects like that, imagine what other alternatives could emerge if, you know, these companies were uh, engaged in socially useful production. And, and then one backlash, of course, might be, well, yeah, they are, uh, or that they are by doing these large language models, that they are by doing that work. But I'm not, I'm not clear on that. I think that you know, a large amount of energy and intellect and talent and, and, and passion is spent on building ad tech, right? And preserving monopolies. Um, and yeah, that's the source of their power and their influence, but maybe it is time to like really envision a totally different company. Um, and, you know, sure, we're not there yet, but I think that is something important to to look at as a source of inspiration because other workers have done it before. Even if it just because it, it wasn't successful doesn't mean it shouldn't be looked at. Um, it should be animating a lot of the discussions. And, you know, I think that the union though is really exciting in that yeah, uh, they're, they're growing and they're also ensuring to in include contractors, right? Which is, I think, a good step because of how yeah. the company uses that division of labor. Um, to preserve a lot of projects, to preserve a lot of, you know, competition uh, or, you know, cutthroat dynamics that might otherwise prevent, you know, solidarity across class lines um, and to also genuinely suppress, you know, militancy. Um, I'm excited by it, I, but I, yeah, also at the same time feeling that there also needs to be the question, like, should Google even exist? Does it deserve to exist? Um, yeah, does it deserve to be as big as it is? I don't really think so or agree, even though I'm like 
uh, you really pick one of your tech titans at this point. It's like either Apple or Google or Microsoft or a combination of them. And my combination is Microsoft and Google. And many of their products do help my life. But they would also help my life. And those same smart people would be there if it wasn't all this one big misconnected thing that had too much power on its own, constantly avoided taxes, and couldn't make a social networking app properly. But uh, it, like again, the elephant in the room here remains our elected officials and our politicians. And the fact that they have, it's literally their job to look at antitrust cases, look at um, things like these. And we had, it seems almost like at the beginning of the internet, you had like the Telecommunications Decency Act, the Communications Decency Act, um, all these different things that were established in a way where, okay, we know the internet's here, we don't know what it's gonna be, but here are just like the ground rules. And since then, it seems like there's just been the sort of hands-off, laissez-faire approach, thinking that, well, the way the internet is is the way the internet should be and continue to until we get to net neutrality and whether or not um, companies can prioritize data on their networks in certain ways or not based on their interests. That, of course, that's when the internet has to change. But anytime I see some of these uh, hearings where the tech companies come up in front of Congress, I noticed three things. I noticed from the Republican side that the questions are less about what the hearing is meant to be about, and it's more about, I posted this thing on Facebook and it only got this many likes. When I posted this thing on Facebook and it got this many likes, why do you hate America? <laughs> and it's just like, or like, how come I can't search this thing in my Gmail was literally one congressperson, like one lawmaker's question about like, these are just like absolute why did no one like my shit post? You know, that's like a lot of their questions too. Yeah, it's just absolute like, nev never mind it's like the kind of stuff that your boomer parents or grandparents would be texting you about asking these like basic questions about how to use their phone. It's almost purposely bad faith and wasting their time because if they started talking about business regulation, that's just not a friendly course for Republicans to be on anyways. And that's part one. Part two is what I noticed from Democrats, which is just like, you know, you, you get some glimpses of hope there. You have some um, Congress people who are generally on the ball. I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is really good with this. I think Rokana, 60 to 75% of the time, is good with this and his understanding of big tech, but it's still too close to it for me for a little bit of my um, desires. But most of the Democratic Congress people are just woefully unprepared and don't really know exactly what they're talking about. So much so that, like, me, like a passively knowledgeable person about politics and tech can just go, well, that's just entirely a misunderstanding of Section 230 right there. There's all these other different things that um, they just seem woefully unprepared to do the job of making at least the case that there should be something being done. Because we already know what the Republicans are going to do. They're going to complain about censorship, um, ask why their sister can't see their post, and um, ignore the business repercussions of it. Democrats are supposed to be there to address the business repercussions and the political ramifications and societal ramifications of big tech. Um, but many of them are beholden to those business interests, as we said, of that relationship between um, the coastal elites in the Democratic Party and the big tech elites um, around there. But... Like, that's the second thing I noticed, is that the Democrats more or less aren't really strong enough from where they should go. But the third thing is, altogether, is that you take those two things, and it seems like our lawmakers both aren't prepared to deal with these tech issues and don't want to. And so, 
Uh, of course, the obvious position is like the same thing you do with everything, every political issue, when you realize that the people in power either don't want to deal with that issue or are woefully unprepared with that issue, and you like primary them and get them the hell out of office. But beyond that, I think there needs to be almost a recontextualization or a resetting of how we should approach big tech. I And I like that historical analysis that we did earlier in the podcast of like there are a number of historical precedents and examples for locally what's happening in San Francisco and what's happening to people who live around there, um, and globally, or sorry, even nationally and what's happening with Facebook and Google and Amazon and our local, our national political elections, but even globally where you have um, misinformation being spread through WhatsApp groups in uh, parts of Southeast Asia and parts of South America. Um, you have tweets that are running afoul of major leaders here and there who want them to be censored, and so there are these fights that are there. It's gone way out of control. By the way, none of these companies pay taxes, <laughs> so it's like they're almost doing free hearings with the Congress. But like, it, this is such a mess. It's so out of control. We spent nearly um, an hour talking about how much out of control this is, but it ends up at the fact that every given opportunity um, it seems like these politicians don't want to do anything about it. And we're starting to see some things. We saw antitrust uh, actions against Facebook and now Google lately as a result of those hearings I'm talking about. But do you think there is something missing from this calculation that um, politicians need to better utilize so we can see some more tangible actions in the future? Or maybe this is just a slow process? I think part of the problem here is just like how generally corrupt the American political system is. I mean, like, you know, to a great deal, I think a great example is the telecom monopolies. I mean, telecom monopolies literally write the laws, right? They're fused to the state intelligence apparatus. Uh, they lobby so effectively that uh, regulators have no interest, it seems, in regulating them or seriously holding them accountable for anything that they do or and handing out tax breaks whenever they can that amount to tens of billions of dollars, uh, giving them subsidies and grants for programs that they never finish, like providing fiber optics or broadband coverage to rural areas or expanding it in cities. You know, there's um, all sorts of ways in which there's a massive amount of grift, um, a massive amount of donations for access, uh, a lot of back and forth and, you know, um, close relationships um, and transactional relationships between companies, PACs and politicians that, you know, on some level, there's a reluctance to see it as a systemic issue and more as like, uh, you just need the right people in place, I think, you know, I think a lot of people over time, because they've, we have a system that inculcates these close relationships between like, you know, a lobbying team whose only job is to live in uh, DC and schmooze every politician that they possibly can. And that's the relationship that they have with this company, while millions of people across the country have a wildly different relationship with them um, is part of the problem. Um, but, you know, also at the same time, it is that because of how this, how over the past, you know, century, I would say of, you know, labor attitudes changing and also over the past half century with antitrust thought and attitudes changing, that there has been a real shift, which has led us to the point where people, regulators, scholars, um, you know, may not see a real problem, a systemic problem and just see it as um, incidental or as, you know, as a moment, a strange moment, but that normally the system works and it just, the course needs to be corrected. 
I'm encouraged by the the surge of movements, activism, um, you know, revisionist histories, uh, critical looks and engagements uh, that have revealed that to not be the case, and that there is really a serious threat here to the balance of power between labor and capital. Um, I mean, it's already so far, you know, shifted to. Uh, capital, but there's a threat to the chance of ever, you know, engaging in a compromise again and having workers get some livable, you know, set of benefits out of letting capital control every other part of the society. Um, And, you know, to get there, there needs to be more pressure applied. There needs to be, you know, of course, like some, you know, stubborn uh, politicians removed. Um, There also, there needs to be you know, I think like part of his personnel's policy, there just need to be more people placed in more of these positions um, who are willing to listen to or negotiate with or take notes and cues from the movements um, that are organizing and applying pressure. Because otherwise, I mean, you can have organized movements, you can have a labor movement, you can have an antitrust movement. But if a Google lawyer runs the antitrust division, they don't give a fuck. You know, they could care less. (laughs) They could care less. Um, And if uh, Google lawyers are running like every part of the apparatus or if Verizon lawyers are running every part of the apparatus, like Bill Barr was, you know, Verizon lawyer and he was running the DLJ, they don't care. And they're not going to be threatened. Ajit Pai was a lobbyist for Verizon too, right? Before he was chairman of the FCC. I mean, yeah, you know, there needs to be people who are going to listen, who are willing to understand, or who will be scared, you know, in all honesty. Um, and the and corporate lobbyists and lawyers are at the bottom of that list, um, and as are the people who consider them friends. Um, and I think, you know, that is also going to be, and that remains to be a huge barrier uh, to the real change that we need to see to restructure how the labor um, operates and, you know, exists in this country and also how companies are allowed to concentrate power. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. There needs to be like a fundamental shifting in the system itself. We need to realign and say, okay, we understand they're corrupt politicians, but these politicians are probably would be slimy people outside of politics, but our political system rewards corruption, uses corruption as like a standard means of operating. And you have to almost create new means in order to operate outside of that and then be um, accountable to different uh, groups of people. Like the Justice Democrats doing small dollar donations to try to make themselves more financially accountable to regular constituents around the country as opposed to uh, making making their time more available towards um, people who are lobbyists in office. Like there was this really good article that I think CNBC got a hold of a recording from one of Microsoft's presidents basically saying that, yeah, this is pay for play. The reason why we donate to politicians, even though there are a lot of companies, including tech companies, that are rethinking their donations to politicians in the late, um, in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol insurrection, even though there are a lot of companies who are rethinking their political contributions, Microsoft is very much not one of them. And yeah, that thing was recorded on tape courtesy of CNBC where they said, where he said, um, we donate money here because these politicians, they have these weekend get togethers and they only invite the people to come to those get togethers who have donated the money. So that's the way we get in those politicians ear and that's the way we are able to like be heard. Um, 
<laughs> it's almost said in a way, if I have the direct quote here, it's almost said in a way where like, it's almost dumb for us, you and me, Edward, that we're not giving <laughs> our Congress people $2,500 so that we can get in these meetings too. I mean, like if apparently it's just that easy, but there's a fundamental like issue with the way our political system works. We're like, politicians have talked about this all the time. This isn't new with this Microsoft situation. There are outgoing Congress people who go, yo, most of my time is not legislating, it's not speaking to constituents, it's phone calls with donors and hearing what they want to say and all these different things. And he's saying yes sometimes and saying no other times. It's just inserting yourself into a greasy, corrupt system with no real way to change it on an individual level and just trying to do what good you can before it spits you back out seems to be what a lot of Congress people say about it. So it's very indicative of the system and it's something that these tech companies definitely know about and are actively exploiting. And I think that's the important part to know there is that there isn't this sort of like willful ignorance or they don't know. It's that no, these lawyers are paid a lot of money. <laughs> these financial um, analysts and um, accountants are paid a lot of money. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing, very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, like, you know, there were 147 members of Congress um, that voted against um, certifying the election, right? And people are calling them the Sedition Caucus. And there's this really great report from um, Citizen called like, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I think it, it was about the Sedition Caucus. I think it was Big Tech Bank World's The Sedition Caucus, a great report by Gene Chung and uh, Mike Tanglis. And basically talks about how, you know, look, like the big these big five tech companies, you know, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, um, publicly and privately condemned the insurrection in one way or another, right? But also at the same time, donated like $2 million to the 147 members of Congress who voted to say the Electoral College was bullshit um, and that Donald Trump, you know, might have won the election. Uh, you have you know, each of them, you know, you have like Amazon, for example, Amazon donated to 89 of those members uh, by itself, about like 61% of them, you know, half, almost half a million dollars. Microsoft donated 69, you know, almost $400,000. Google donated to 61 of them, you know, almost $500,000. These are, you know, the real statements i think from these companies and not like the belief or the, the the pr moves by them that oh like we oppose the riot we oppose the insurrection i mean if that was the case and why were they also donating to you know uh, campaigns run by loffler and purdue who both <laughs> said that they were gonna uh, vote to oppose the certification of the election um you know the these companies, uh, word, you know, talk is cheap for them. You know, the money, as you said, you know, I'm pointing out with that CNBC um, uh, recording, the money is the means to which they can get what they want, help with taxes and reducing them, help with visa issues, you know, help with gutting or killing or uh, circumventing legislation that they view as problematic. Um, it's pay to play. Uh, and that is like the overriding structure. That is the rules. That is how the you know washington operates and until stuff like that is rooted out it's it's always going to become a recurring threat we can get all the antitrust rules and all the labor reforms that we want but as but we can do that and if it's still a corrupt political system then that shit's going to be gone in a few years as was the case i mean we had massive antitrust and labor reform before and it was over time you know, over the course of a century, partly because of corruption, partly because of larger changes um, 
in the general economy that allowed specific actors to get enough power and to convince enough politicians or to change the underlying ideology and support for certain policies in their favor to undermine those reforms, right? And if we do not root out the corruption, it will happen again. But also, I think that the reason it's hard to root out the corruption is because I think it's just an endemic nature of capitalism, you know, that these people um, are going to try to use the state as a vehicle for their interests, which is preserving um, their control over the production of something or preserve their, you know, sovereignty or autonomy or preserve the interests of their investors or preserve the ability of, of the company to um, prioritize profits or prioritize, you know, reducing labor costs or prioritize, you know, cleaning up its own house. Um, and, you know, within this political system, we can change it, but the larger economic system encourages it still, I think. One of my favorite books about political economy I read was Mariana Mazzucato's Entrepreneurial State. And it's almost my like, it's it, to me, it's my like libertarian to socialist pipeline that I give to people that I'm kind of like annoyed with who like, like my, my economics and finance major friends who like hearing about these things in their terms. But ultimately what she's talking about in the book is saying that, look, the government is one of the biggest venture capital investors the tech sector has ever had. When you look at the internet and the fact that that was funded through um, um, Department of Defense and DARPA and like movement was really pushed there. A lot of these servers to create the first um, computers that could talk to each other are down by UCLA, the public university run by the state of California. Like the state um, in many ways, especially um, up till the 90s, was instrumental in providing the uh, labor, the human capital and the financial capital to help innovation go on. But there seemed to be this tale at the end where, unlike most venture capitalists, where they're like, we want this amount of money when we pull out. We want this when it's done. They're just like, no, just pay taxes maybe and uh, behave yourselves. And that's kind of the way the government works. Even, yeah, e even my favorite example that I don't think a lot of people bring up, but I will because of my personal vendetta against the man, uh, Elon Musk and uh, Tesla. Uh, he had a company before that called Solar City. Um, that qualified for uh, federal benefits because of Obama's stimulus package during the 2009 um, economic collapse, and 2008 economic collapse. Uh, Tesla also received some money around the time Elon Musk was raking the original Tesla Roadster. And through that funding and other funding, he was able to basically save Tesla from uh, financial extinction, build that Roadster, and then go on his plan to build luxury cars that he can build non-affordable luxury electric cars and then sell those at prices that um, don't make sense and even though the cars still fall apart and all that shit, right? So Elon Musk, who is even more so like, depending on how you count the financial instruments any given day, richer than even Jeff Bezos, right? Is a direct beneficiary of government capital, of United States capital. Meanwhile, the United States government, I'm not necessarily saying they should, I'm not necessarily saying they shouldn't, is not going to Elon Musk like, yo, where's our 10% cut? <laughs> like, they're not taking his shares, they're not doing anything like that. So I, I, 
I do very much love this book and this author, and so I have tried to apply a lot of these things to American problems, but do you think that maybe a influx of politicians, maybe a um, new caucus, a progressive caucus, could take along this view of things that, hey, the government should act more like a venture capitalist if we're gonna stay in this like capitalist system, and it should continue to invest in these companies, but also think more smartly about how the public uses those as the investor acting as the taxpayer. So like, maybe in this system, we would have a public social network where some of these arguments about freedom of speech are a little bit more direct because it's controlled by the government. Um, but you also don't have to worry about uh, censorship that private companies may choose to do for whatever logical or illogical reason. So th that's kind of my point of optimism. I want to know what your thoughts would be on that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the I think that's interesting. A way to think about it is not, or you know, like I understand the the idea that you know, since the government already is the venture capitalist, it should you know figure out a way to to lean on the companies, and so that these things are more accountable. But I think another way to think about it is like since the government funds these things, it should just democratize them more. I mean, these are large institutions that affect every one of our daily lives, whether we want them to or not. At the very least, they should be run by the workers and not in the name of investors who are mainly concerned with profits. But in reality, they should be run by the public. And that can be in a variety of ways. That can be your local uh, control. That can be municipal control. That can be federal control. You know, Public control doesn't always mean uh, Washington, D.C. controls it, but it does mean that we should control it. And I really do think, you know, Pretty much all the social media companies, uh, pretty much a lot of these platforms that provide like on-demand services, as much of them should be cut down to size and then integrated into a localized system where then if we decide we want them to be a larger scale, we can have them integrated into some larger system. Like, you know, part of the, like with social media, you know, the size is such a huge problem. I'm not even sure if it makes sense to have global, uh, one central globalized communications platform right now at this point, right? And it, and it doesn't mean that you can't talk to people overseas, right? But it does mean we need to think about better ways for moderating and handling this stuff with public control here before we start scaling it up further and further and further. The development model for the digital economy and for the internet has been haphazard, you know? Just pour a bunch of sand over it on top of like other layers over and over and over and hope it doesn't collapse. Um, and I think the foundation is rickety. Uh, the materials we're using are rickety. Uh, we need to, in all honesty, not be afraid of experimentation. And maybe experimentation means, you know, destroying a lot of the things that we've built up over time, but also realizing that the things that we enjoy, the things that have worked for us, the things that help us are not necessarily things that are good for us, right? They are things that we have either been conditioned to accept, uh, told that are natural outgrowths and the only possible way that something can exist, or uh, been exposed to for so long, we've never considered that there is an alternative. Maybe you can have a totally different um, social media platform where you speak and you don't immediately get brigaded by right-wing bigots or racists if you're black and a vocal critic or something. You know, that would be nice. <laughs> and maybe we can see how to create a system like that that isn't Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever social media uh, platform. You know, there are lots of 
alternative methods for developing them that have exi or that ex exist experiments that might be interesting to scale up, but we'll never know if we are wedded to the idea that these are private firms, we should let them compete with each other, we should let them be dynamic uh, engines of growth. Because I, it, it, to me, it just doesn't make sense why you would want your ability to communicate with each other to be on the market. You know, why does it make sense for the ability for me and you to have a conversation to be something that a corporation can innovate or develop when it should be something that we have a say in because we're the ones that are communicating and because they're interested in doing it in a way where they can get a cut of it, right? Or find something that will give them, you know, their own profitable enterprise. That system has not worked for us. So right. why would we return to it? That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of these things with tech, it's always an interesting thing because we associate tech with a lot of our sci-fi fantasies and we want it to be the manifestation of what we want good to happen in the world. But it's always way more complicated than that and you have to come across these existing systems and new systems that you're creating that mimic existing systems in order to kind of manage your way out of this. But I think it begins a lot with the reimagining and re-placing of oneself and one's context to understand what can truly be possible and then what is being sort of held down or like what is the possible that is being held down or held back by certain features and what can be done about those features that might be like outside of the box. And like it's, I, it's really amazing, I think, that uh, you have this sort of ability to see these things as separate pieces, because even getting political people into like the tech world can even be like a big jump, right? So like even, how did you, as someone who, like even I, when I was thinking about like, oh, do I want to talk in front of a camera about politics for a living? Like, do I want to do that thing? I wanted to make it very focused on the intersection of politics and technology. And because that just seemed like, okay, well, this is the future. This is where all of business is happening and politics is connected to it. This is just going to be an interesting beat, right? So, like, I guess, how did you come to that mindset as well? Yeah, you know, um, a long time ago, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and I, you know, I was going to this, I was going to Maryland for, like, pre-med um, um, and, uh, could not handle it and dropped out and the dropping out was the best thing I did, you know, because it gave me a chance to actually, you know, work in a bunch of positions, try to spend time learning myself, learning about what I liked and was more interested in, which was politics, but like what my general politics were. Um, I got to do organizing, I got to do labor organizing, I got to do, you know, electoral organizing. Um, and those experiences, you know, eventually when I went back to school convinced me that I would either be fine with doing organizing or maybe like some sort of, you know, analyst or writing position about these two things. And it was really only in like near the end of, uh, you know, my last year where I was doing a research project on Uber and Lyft um, and getting frustrated because I was doing research on like the earlier coverage of it, getting frustrated with the coverage and also getting frustrated with and remembering the conditions I saw among drivers and not seeing it you know, spoken about as much that I thought that there might be a way to fuse them. But before then, my uh, belief would I have to do one or the other, right? I think uh, fusing them just came more of, out of a consequence of experiences than like an, a plan. But ever since has felt to me like the right approach, you know, because so much of how we talk about these things and how we think about these things is solely focused on the economic side. Um, 
not about the moral questions, not about the ethical concerns, uh, not about the workers that are involved in them. And that's not to say that doesn't exist at all. I mean, that is a growing part. And I think that has always been a strain of like labor reporting. Labor reporting has always been good about uh, focusing on the workers and by, as a result, focusing on the real human element, on focusing on the ethical concerns and the morality of, uh, of the systems. Um, but tech has gotten away with that and prevented people from looking at the labor side because the belief is, you know, tech is this divine thing. It is this magical force that we discovered, you know, that was waiting for us. We discovered, we've harnessed it, and now it's changing our society. When technology is just another system, another tool, and the real powerful things, the real things that are alive are the human beings behind it, not just the workers also, but the people who are planning how it's used. And that a lot of the stuff we ascribe to technology is really the consequence of people planning on how to use it, right? You, and seeing the real consequences of that, you know, Uber, for example, is hailed at this magical disruptive force. And yet a lot of the drivers I knew in my organizing sleeping in their cars, right? Unable to see their children for weeks at a time. Um, you know, horrible, horrible lives driven to the brink of, you know, catastrophe and despair. Um, you know, that is not a choice that they made. If this technology is so good, then why are they suffering like that? Well, obviously it's because it's a consequence of a decision that someone else made. Okay, well, if that's the case, then how can we tease that out for every uh, for other people to understand? Because it's not obvious, you know, when you get in the car with your Uber driver, you don't see the other side of their life, right? Um, you don't see that they slept yeah. in that car. You don't see that they're that they don't have health insurance. You don't see that they're like, they have a chronic health condition that they are not able to afford. But you see the specifically constructed experience that is for you, which is nice ride, some conversation, you get out, you rate them, you tip them, and you know, you go your separate way. And so commentary should be trying to help people to expand their awareness of things beyond like the nice cozy narratives that are constructed for them to experience and digest. Right. And you do that by melding, you know, political um, context uh, and labor, hopefully, and um, like I think critical, you know, engagement. Sometimes hate, you know, I hate a lot of these companies, <laughs> but uh, and that's definitely, you know, my bias. My bias is towards the workers, uh, but I think that's fair to have, you know, when so much of it is biased towards the companies. Amen on that. And I think a lot of this is also, like I said, we're looking towards a brighter future, right? And so because I rarely get to have this exact intersection of conversations, very rarely, I wanted to get your take on sort of the idea of Afrofuturism, which has been kind of used for at least half a century now as kind of viewing the black experience as not only sort of in a world that is post a lot of these socio-economic um, and racial uh, injustices that people in that community face, but also looks at blackness as tied to the future and tech and allowing that technical progress to um, take black people along with them as opposed to leaving them behind. And so I guess in that sort of moment, like what are your thoughts on like Afrofuturism in general? And like, what are your, I guess, wishes and hopes for the future of black people and their relationship to technology? Yeah, you know, I think one of my, you know, some of my favorite writing, some of it not explicitly Afrofuturist and others just, you know, it's, you know, by black writers, I think gives like the best sort of look or best understanding, I think, into the ways in which tech 
is used, right? And is a system that can oppress or liberate people. Um, and it, I think it is, it is really fascinating to think about or to use blackness as the basis for uh, engaging with technology, right? To try to give, to, to, to deconstruct a myth that technology is a divine thing, right? And also to make people more awareness of like the experience of blackness and the ways in which it gets mediated and, or lived in life, whether that's through class or whether that's just through race itself or sexuality. Um, and I and I think that, you know, you know, some of my favorite stories, like for example, with Octavia Butler, um, but more recently with like NK Jemsons, you know, where they're not explicitly technologically driven, right? But blackness does form the basis of the sci-fi future to think about the ways in which specific systems or technologies or magics, right, can just emerge as tools to oppress deeply a group of people and build up the oppression as just like an everyday part of life. I think that's a really important thing and lesson to carry forward with technology, which is that it is not like some neutral vehicle of, uh, of um, whatever the environment has. I mean, you know, like the, to push, like when we push back against the idea that tech is not inherently good, that does not also mean that it is like neutral, right? That in a society, you know, which is racist and which already views or uses, you know, black people, poor people, white, you know, anyone who is not a holder of capital in um, very specific ways, right? Exploits them, that technology ends up doing that. And, and in these, you know, these, these futurist visions, then the idea is like, okay, what would a technology look like if you didn't have that as like a core part of the experience for a lot of people? And I think that's, it's, it's a breath of, uh, Fresh air, although, I mean, maybe not like the Broken Earth series. <laughs> you know, Broken Earth series is by Decade Jensen <laughs> is a little, is pretty fucking depressing. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, there's a lot of different takes you can have on yeah, it. Yeah, but it's like there are moments in it where you can see what it, by viewing it from the perspective of a character whose blackness is the essential, what it looks like to be free of a system who's constructed explicitly to exploit you and and think about that as a basis for like what a society where we decide to use these technical systems to free ourselves instead of preserve systems of power might look like you know it might be a very pleasing experience this is part of the series where like they are able to get away from um from the uh, from the pier is it the pyramid? It's been a while since I read it, but the pyramid, and they live like you know in this island community for a short while. And I thought of that as like one of my my favorite points of the book, where it's like yeah, there's not too much of tech around, there's not too much of like the magic around, but there is just like a more a focus on the fam on their family, on like the connections they have with the community and the the people on the island. And I think about that smallness as um something that needs to be thought of that I think Afrofuturist, you know, visions also, you know, latch onto that we don't have to just have tech that is monolithic and, um, and universal. And that actually might be part of the danger. You know, it might be a good idea to just scale back and not have it in some places entirely. And to instead just focus on ways we can get back and claw back from 
the the nonsense that has been you know fed into our heads to convince us to to treat people with hatred and bigotry and and, and contempt um, just for the purpose of like you know making a system hoard resources for a few you know people. Um, I don't know. Those are a bunch of scattered thoughts, but yeah, that's, I, I, I do think that it is like some of my more favorite sci-fi, but there's not nearly enough of it. Maybe, maybe as like we start to turn more against tech, <laughs> we'll see more. Yeah. I, I, I'm very much the same. I'm getting into it more from a literature angle, but I've always just liked it from as like an aesthetic, um, just from the basic, like, imagining a mix of like the Jetsons meets black exploitation, like there's just always like that sort of vibe. Um, but I mean, to me, I relate it to a lot of the political things I see where there's <clears throat> like, at least I see a big gap in tech adoption even. Like I'm super fortunate I'm speaking to you over like a half a gigabit internet connection wired here and near my like nice middle-class like neighborhood and all these things. But there are a lot of people who live in like not even like urban cent not even like uh, rural areas that are far away from both of us, but like urban centers about 10 miles away from me that are just dead zones for internet, where especially during COVID-19, these uh, black and brown families have had to adjust to a world that was not built for them, that was not built for these people in mind, that was not built um, acknowledging the inequities of even something as access to internet, let alone what you do with that technology once it's there. And so, yeah, I think a lot of my, not just even Afrofuturism, but just what I want for the future of technology is us for the transition technology as tools again, not the things that dictate our lives, but things that make our life easier or more automated so that we can get to living life and enjoying life in a better way. And as that relates to Afrofuturism, it's to getting both internally, like closer to community and family and spirituality in those ways as it makes sense as the atheist, but also in ways where it's empowering and um, enlightening and able to use technologies, again, as tools for liberation of all different kinds, liberation from colonialism um, in other countries, or, liber li or liberation from the impact of capitalism, even in more developed countries. Uh, not just this sort of like, suit, like black capitalist, like I'm going to be the oppressor now kind of thing, but more just like a we can use technology as it exists as a catalyst and as a conduit for us to be able to focus on the other things that aren't technology in itself. So that, that to me is like my Afrofuturist like hope and dream there. But I think it ties in with a lot of what you're saying that ultimately the technology is great. It does everything we can imagine it to and more, but it's a Pandora's box we don't know how to deal with. So let's deal with it, but let's also, you know, just understand like there, there's a limit to this. We, we created Twitter. It's this wonderful communications tool. All we do is basically dunk on dads who tweet their parenting styles or whatever Piers Morgan happens to say in any given day. Like that's the limit of the that's the limit of the technology now. So we, we can learn to like scale it back and understand when we can do things again. I think one of like I think also you know Broken Earth is really fascinating because it begins the series with just like a very you know the cataclysmic event of. Uh, destroying like the center of this 
of the continents, like, you know, empire, right? And destroying, like, what is a very well-advanced, harmonic set of technologies to harness magical energy and to bring prosperity to a narrow group of people and a wider, you know, standard of living to everybody. But that the whole thing needs to be destroyed before anything, you know, damn the cost before anything else can spring up. And I think that idea is interesting. It's not considered as much in general when we talk about technology because of how much people benefit from a system like ours, even though it hurts mm. so many people, billions of people across this world live in abject poverty or in miserable conditions so that what one, maybe 2 billion people can live a relatively modest lifestyle. Um, you know, we, those of us within it feel that, okay, the solution is to mediate and reform, but, you know, for the, for a lot of humanity, it would make more sense to just destroy it. Right. And, and figure out how to rebuild from there. And I think like in a lot of these stories, the willingness to explore and urge to destroy or the rage at being at the, you know, crushed by a lot of these systems is something that people need to think more of and have a hard time doing because you know they are not black right they're not or they or they're not sitting with maybe a certain uh or they're not seeing what experiences that like have continually left them out of a system that is otherwise prosperous and fine for other people i mean and some of them have you know poverty is all, you know enough of an experience you know i grew up you know pretty you know poor area in like a very wealthy county and a very wealthy part of uh, Maryland. And that was a radicalizing experience in of itself, just seeing like how, you know, as soon as you turn the corner in very specific neighborhoods, you know, you get into huge homes or you get into like radically different uh, maintenance of uh, roads or public infrastructure uh, of internet, of uh, water, then people who live just on the other side of something, right? Um, and it makes no sense other than because they're not white, right? Um, and that sort of experience or people who experience those sorts of things, I think are more willing to say like, okay, like this thing, it, it's fine if we get rid of it and start over um, than those who benefit from it and only want things to get a little bit less comfortable in the hopes that as many people as possible will be bought off with that marginal change. It's always those easy solutions that get us. Everyone are like, the people who are comfortable want the easiest solution to stay comfortable when, um, I mean, the, there is that solution. It's luxury automated space communism, but <laughs> the uh, every other way around that is going to have to deal with some sort of discomfort. And it's the same discomfort that uh, oppressed individuals have been dealing with for centuries, um, ingrained in them, like, through generations. Um, and it's also not even that level of it, but it's just like a similar kind of distress and discomfort. But I think understanding that there aren't easy solutions to these things and then being willing to go, okay, there aren't easy solutions. That's not gonna scare me. I'm gonna do the work, even if it takes a little bit of time to understand these problems and the nuances between them, and then figure out a way to help connect with other people who are similarly affected and concerned about these nuances to take action. Because we had this really heady conversation about all these different topics. I know um, my audience is full of really smart people will be getting some of this, much of this, but then the next step is, okay, where do you go from here? But even if you're not as engaged as you and I are in this directly, or um, even the people who are super, uh, 
plugged into the news about politics and technology can understand a little bit of uneasiness with the way technology impacts our lives as a society. And that's a way you can start in to use union terms like agitating people and getting them to understand these larger issues and building that uh, curiosity for themselves. Then you're just adding allies to your side and helping things out there. And I think in different points in this conversation, that's kind of been the clear thing is that the reform, the reformation of technology and tech culture that is needed right now is going to come from the bottom up and definitely not the top down. Um, but uh, that all kind of really highlights that point of what you said is that, that this is going to be something that we all need to kind of really get involved with and understand and understand the implications of our of technology on our lives so that we can make smarter decisions about our uses of technology and what we want our lawmakers to do on our behalf and how closely we're watching those lawmakers on our behalf. Um, so yes, thank you very much, Edward, for joining me. Tell folks again where they can find you and your brilliant work. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was, it was great talking with you. Um, I am on Twitter at BigBlackJacobin. Uh, you can also find <laughs> you can also find our podcast uh, machine kills pod on twitter um and my work you can find it at uh, vice uh motherboard uh, in the tech section where i write about labor and tech hell yeah edward thank you very much for coming on and making my twitter experience also generally more enjoyable <laughs> i appreciate it and it's been great talking to you <laughs>